0: Liberty can be a counterintuitive idea to people, right? You have to do your research before you realize, oh yeah, this actually makes sense and it changes everything I previously knew about the world. <laughs> and not a lot of people are going to, to make that realization. And so we're, we're we're going to be a minority globally, but we can be a majority in, in one place.
1: On this episode of Liberty Curious, I sat down with Jason Sorens, senior research faculty at AIER, co-author of Freedom in the 50 States and founder of the Free State Project to discuss how much government interferes with our daily lives. Jason claims that adults should be treated like adults and not children, but the government often does the very opposite. We also talk about how to approach issues from a libertarian perspective, such as life-altering medical procedures for kids, hard drugs, tobacco, and where to draw the line on externalities. Jason also talks about the New Hampshire Free State Project and how liberty-oriented people can foster freedom at the local level.
0: Well, it's interesting because libertarians tend to be sympathetic to the anti-federalists because we see the gargantuan federal government of today and we think, yeah, there was a flaw in the design that ultimately led to this um, huge government. The, it, there was too much centralization of power. And there's some truth to that. But at the time, the anti-federalists tended to be, not exclusively, they were kind of a mixed bag, but a lot of them were much more populist. And they they wanted states to be able to um, have paper money and you know have trade barriers, and in mm. other ways kind of manipulate their economies. And people like James Madison wanted a more free market, open trade, private property, you know, sound money. And that's why he wanted a federal government that could check the states, which he saw as the big impediment to economic progress. So these debates don't really align fully with the kind of debates that we have um, today in the U.S.
1: Oh, that is very, very interesting. So... um... James Madison was he more of what you would call a libertarian?
0: I think James Madison I mean libertarian might be a, an anachronistic term for the 18th century but yeah he was a, he was definitely a classical liberal. If you read um I think it's Federalist 10 where he talks about factions and factions are what we would now call interest groups and he says that the the biggest problem um, from factions is that they will want to um, set up paper money, they'll, they'll want to abolish debts, um, they'll want to redistribute property. <laughs> so all his concerns were about excessive government involvement in the economy. Um, mm-hmm. So he wanted individual rights uh, and, and free market policies. Uh, I think he was mistaken in thinking that the federal government was ultimately the big solution to that. And he himself in his lifetime actually changed his mind about that and became more of a states' rights type of person um, Mm. because he started to see the threat from the federal government. Um, But yeah, he was definitely a a classical liberal who favored strictly limited government.
1: Interesting. So back then it was basically like thinking that the states maybe because they were actually closer to the individuals who held a lot of power and wealth that they would kind of be able to distort things more and the federal government would be there to just kind of keep the checks and balances whereas now it's kind of flipped.
0: Yeah, and you have to you have to remember that in those days the average population of a state was something like I don't know, 70,000 people, something along those lines. These were these were small, you know, no state is that that small now. And so um, his worry was that, you know, one group could end up taking control of the legislature and just do everything in their own interests, And it could be the farmers or it could be the merchants or whoever. So, yeah, he was, he was just worried that you would get kind of tyranny of the majority at the state level. Um, and for that reason, he wanted to make sure that there was a, a an open common market. And I think... As libertarians now, we can go go back and look at that and say, you know what, he was right that an open common market is, an, is the solution there, because what that does is it actually checks state governments. So the reason we favor highly decentralized government where states have a lot of autonomy to set economic policy is that we actually want states to um, be held in check, and they're held in check by this process of competition, where now um, if if we start to redistribute wealth, if, if we start to embark on crazy economic policies, if we get a lot of corruption, taxpayers are going to flee. They're going to go to other states. And that's only possible if we have a big, open, common market. And so that's the part of unifying the country that was the good part for libertarians because it set up this more competitive model of federalism. And that's what undergirded our growth and economic development all the way up until the middle of the, the 20th century.
1: I think I know what you're leaning towards there, but yeah. what <laughs> happened there that changed things?
0: Well, it was really the, the Great Depression and the New Deal and uh, Supreme Court precedents that we still live under today that fundamentally changed the nature uh, of the, the relationship between the federal government and the citizen. So now, um, essentially if it's an economic issue of any kind, uh, the courts are extremely reluctant to place any limits on Congress. So the federal government could pass any law that has to do with economics and it's, con- it's presumptively constitutional. That wasn't what the, the founders intended, that wasn't the way the Constitution was ever interpreted up until 1937, uh, when the Supreme Court started to change um, positions on this and and let a lot of these New Deal programs stand, rather than overturn them, uh, as unconstitutional. So that, that changed things because now uh, the federal government is there to actually Um, regulate the economy and, and even help states regulate the economy. So a lot of what states do is administer money that the federal government gives them or enact regulations that the federal government incentivizes them to have. And so we don't have that competitive model of federalism as much anymore. We still have some of it, but we don't have as much of that where, yeah, um, states are autonomous, but they're also highly constrained because you as the citizen have a lot of power. You can move from state to state, and that can really change your tax burden and, and the regulations that you face. Now it's much more uniform because the, the federal government is, is ultimately in the driver's seat.
1: That's really been showcased in the last couple of years, right, where you see there have been certain states that people have fled to. Right. And there's been like three you know, Florida, (laughs) Texas, or New Hampshire, basically, where people Mm -hmm. were like, okay, we want to get out of being under the thumb of this kind of COVID regime. uh, So Mm -hmm. we're going to move here, there, or there. But that's, you know, three states only. And, you know, to varying degrees of freedom within those states. Um, You're in New Hampshire, that's where you're located, you're working on the Free State Project. um, So that's a really interesting thing. Um, And I want to know a little bit more about that and kind of what the uh, what the roots of the Free State Project are.
0: Yeah. I mean, the, the basic idea was, and I, I wrote an essay 22 years ago proposing this. I was a graduate student. And the basic idea was that um, classical liberals, libertarians, people who support strictly limited government, uh, we can't make a big impact at the national level. It's just too big, too far away too dominated by interest groups, billions and billions of dollars at stake in making sure that the status quo doesn't change. Um, So as as disappointing as it may be and as hard to accept as it may be, we're not going to have a big impact on Washington, D.C., but we could have a big impact in a single state, especially one that's small, has an open political process, and most importantly, is already sympathetic to a lot of these ideals of individual freedom. And so, I proposed this general idea. A lot of people signed up, and the first 5,000 people who signed up um, had the right to vote on which state we chose to be our new home. And the state that won that vote was New Hampshire, in part because the governor at the time, a guy named Craig Benson, uh, supported the Free State Project and actually kind of lobbied us to choose New Hampshire, so of all the states we were considering, um, it was the only state where the the governor really wanted us. Plus, it has the the motto "Live Free or Die." It has no general state sales tax, no general state income tax, no seatbelt law for adults, right? So it has this sort of uh, more respect for for private property, for individual freedom, individual choice, and uh, and that made it a great home for us. In addition, it turns out, it's, it has a really accessible political system, so it's the most decentralized state in America. That means that about two-thirds of our tax burden is decided at the local level, not the state level. The, uh, since there's no state sales tax or income tax, most of the revenue comes from local property taxes, actually. That goes to support schools and roads and police and fire. Um, and and the state only gives a little bit to, to local governments. So local governments are, have, a lot of, have a lot of room to decide uh, what they are going to budget and how much they're going to raise in taxes. So that makes it very accessible for the average citizen to really affect their tax burden. What makes it even more accessible is the fact that most of these towns still have the New England town meeting form of government. So you're directly voting on the budget. And each individual line of the budget is a a different vote. And so if you get a town of people who want lower taxes, who want to be fiscally responsible, they can do that they can have very low taxes um, and provide that kind of favorable environment for for property owners Um, they can decide on on local zoning right that's another local issue and many uh, towns in new hampshire don't have zoning at all Um, so they allow property owners to do what they like with their property so for those reasons uh, new hampshire is really a kind of perfect place for people who favor limited government individual freedom uh, to get involved, and thousands of people have moved, and including myself, and uh, have gotten elected, have changed legislation, and it's uh, and it's really made an impact in an area of the country that people perceive as being rather statist and and left wing. Uh, New Hampshire actually really stands out, and that's. Uh, been a, a good model, actually. It's been a, a very clear contrast between, say, Vermont, Maine, and and New Hampshire, all northern New England states. Mm-hmm. New Hampshire, by far, the most successful in terms of its economy, in terms of attracting people and, and investment because of its free market policies.
1: Wow, that's really, really neat. Um, I know people will often think about California or think about New York or think about kind of uh, left leftward states uh, and make comparisons like that. But what about the red states? Like, what about, you know, how do those compare to New yeah. Hampshire?
0: Yeah, so a lot of them have, um, have good economic freedoms. Um, I'm thinking particularly of uh, a lot of the kind of Midwestern states, the Dakotas, uh, Nebraska, Idaho, Wyoming. A lot of those states have uh, fairly low taxes, a fairly light regulatory touch, um, and they kind of have to because, well, if you're, if you're North Dakota, <laughs> you're not going to get a lot of investment unless you have a really attractive policy environment for investment. Um, so these states are not exactly booming, but they're doing very, very well given their climate, right? So if you compare um, the Dakotas to Minnesota, for example, Minnesota, blue state, has trended higher in terms of tax burden, and crime rates, and things like that. And the Dakotas have benefited from that. Right? They, they're significantly outperforming Minnesota. If you look at Indiana, another relatively free red state, right next to Illinois, um, and has significantly outperformed Illinois over the last two decades. People are getting out of Chicago all the time, and a lot of them move to Indiana, uh, or they move elsewhere. Uh, and Indiana, by contrast, not a, you know it's a state in the in the Rust Belt. It's on the Great Lakes. You know it's not a it's not a it's not it doesn't have the advantages of of Southern California or or Florida or places like that. Yet it has a, a, a very good high performing economy because of its policies. So the red states do do pretty well on on some of the economic freedoms in general. Uh, with, with some exceptions, right? There, there are some red states that are, that are not so good. I'm thinking of uh, Kentucky and Mississippi. Um, you know, some of these, these redder states have uh, legacies of strong interest groups and even corruption that have uh, impeded their, their ability to reform. But one area where red states tend to do uh, worse, not always, but often, is personal freedom. Um, so Texas, for example, does quite badly on personal freedom. They're one of the worst states on personal freedom. They're you know, sort of a, a lock them up and throw away the key approach to criminal justice, even for vic- so-called victimless crimes. Um, mm-hmm. They don't have uh, the best gun policies in the country, actually. Uh, they they have somewhat stricter gun regulations than, than a state like New Hampshire, um, and so... Uh, you know, you, you see more of a mixed bag in red states uh, when it comes to those personal freedoms.
1: You know, those are kind of also consequentialist arguments, which we often yeah. use to kind of paint a picture for people of, you know, what are the outcomes going to be if you do this policy or that policy? Um, <clears throat> but I think it's also important to emphasize what the kind of, you um, the moral argument is sometimes, you yeah. know, and you've you've spoken about this in your last piece that you wrote for AIR, which is treating adults like children. And right. I guess like the gist of all of that is how much say should the government actually have in your life in what you do? because by putting out policies like that, or by making laws, you know, about minimum wage, or even about things that you might not like, like transgender story hour. Uh, things like sure. that that they're looking at in Florida, right? I mean, the idea is, okay, maybe it's swinging in your direction now. Right. <laughs> but when it swings in the other direction, are you going to be so happy, right? Like, what is the actual uh, effect of of government imposing a morality on people's mm-hmm. individual choices?
0: Yeah, that's, that's a, a great question. And I, I think the most important point to make there is that when government tries to enforce a private morality on, on people's personal lifestyle choices, they're treating citizens as if they were children. They're putting themselves in the position of a of a parent who can discipline a child. But adults are not children. And when you treat adults uh, as if they were children, you first of all, you violate their rights. You take away their legitimate freedoms. Um, but second of all, you also stunt their moral growth, their ability to make these decisions for themselves, to make mistakes, to learn from them. In fact, even as a parent, you want that actually for your kids more and more as they get older, right? So I have a a nine-year-old, an 11-year-old, and a 12-year-old. So I've seen this. As kids get older, you don't always want to prevent them from making bad decisions. You start to allow them to make some of those when when they're not going to... Significantly affect the rest of the family so that they can learn because experience is the best teacher. So, another way I I like to think about this is if we would not be okay with stepping in and forcing someone to make a particular choice as a private individual, what makes it okay for government, right? So, if someone is, if you see a stranger smoking a cigarette, would it be morally acceptable for you to run up to them and slap it out of their <laughs> out of their hand and and grab their their cigarettes and throw them in the garbage? Of course not. That would be uh, that would be wrong. You'd be violating their rights. Um, so what makes it okay for strangers, organized as the government, to do that? There's really not a, a fundamental moral difference. Um, yes, there may be some cases where uh, there's a loved one who may be, let's say, addicted or something like that. Um, could I intervene if my adult child were about to inject fentanyl into her veins? Yes, okay. <laughs> in that case, in that kind of limited case, yes, I can I can see a, a moral argument for intervening even if the the child is an adult. But that's that's intervening with a loved one where you know the circumstances. The problem is government doesn't know the circumstances of every situation, right? So, actually, it's, it's worse uh, when government intervenes than when private individuals intervene uh, in, in people's lives. Because the government just has a kind of blank, um, uniform approach to everything that cannot take account of how uh, a person is going to react and respond to this stimulus. So, if I think I can help a friend or a loved one um, turn their life around, I can intervene. But government isn't going to be able to, to know how to do that in an effective way. They can throw people in jail, uh, they can tax people, um, but that's not, gonna, that's not the kind of approach that's needed to actually help someone make a better lifestyle choice. So really, at the end of the day, um, it's very, very difficult to make a case that government should be controlling people's private lifestyle choices.
1: Yeah, that's really well said, Jason. And you talk about in your in your piece here, Treating Adults Like Children, you cite how New Zealand recently passed a law permanently prohibiting the sale of tobacco to anyone born on or after January 1st, 2009. So if you're unlucky enough to have been born on or after that date, it will forever be illegal for you to smoke a cigar on a celebratory occasion or to savor a pipe on a dewy summer evening. But... But Jason, you know what? Are, what could we do if the government wasn't there to to teach us how to be healthy? What would <laughs> For, we do?
0: <laughs> yeah, I mean, we we'd we'd, we'd um, I guess always make terrible decisions, right? <laughs> but but in fact, I mean, the the point I wanted to make there is that morality and and prudence in your own life can be can be a, a complex and subtle thing you know what, tobacco use isn't always wrong, right? Sometimes it can be enjoyable and perfectly fine in the same way that occasionally eating ice cream can be perfectly fine and good, right? And, and something that, that people should do, right? And so um, when we set up a law that has one uniform rule for everyone, we cannot take into account all those individual circumstances. And we, again, forfeit our moral judgment are that sometimes difficult process of figuring out when and where a certain activity is appropriate, we forfeit that to uh, a, a simple uh, act of obedience to avoid getting into trouble, right? And, um, and that does not develop our character. It doesn't develop our judgment. And at the end of the day, it makes us unhappy and, um, and uh, unable to sort of enjoy some of the, the good things of life.
1: Yeah, no, that that makes a lot of sense. And um, it actually brings me to think about an article that I read the other day, and you'll appreciate this as well, probably as a parent. Um, It's an author named Janet Lansbury, and she has a podcast called Unruffled. And she writes articles uh, basically about respectful parenting, which is, you know, putting limits up for your children, but also offering them choices and allowing them space to fail as well as you're saying at appropriate times you know ensuring that Mm -hmm. they're they're safe in doing so and that it's not going to have these huge consequences on them or the family and she talks about how a colleague of hers had a, a kindergarten program or a preschool program actually and she had a transfer of students for some reason one of these schools closed and this transfer of a group of students came into her class and her style was, you know, these are four-year-olds, five-year-olds, so it's kind of free play, like letting them explore Mm -hmm. and kind of figure out the situation. Um, But these four-year-olds had previously been at a school where they were already sitting in desks and being told what to do and being uh, taught down to, Mm -hmm. you know, and how to behave and how to be conformist essentially and we see that you know Janet's point was that we see this now at an earlier and earlier age within the education system and within even kind of a daycare system and so do you think that that kind of um, that kind of way of of looking at education from an early age onwards has repercussions as well in the way that Americans Go about their life and thinking that they need somebody to kind of tell them how to live.
0: I do think so, and and sometimes there is a, a place for conformity, uh, right? So some workplaces couldn't operate right if if people didn't follow certain rules, weren't able to take orders and and manage their day. Um, and yes, there's some role for the the school system in, um, in in. Acclimating students to that that kind of environment, but the problem is we our education system is all the way on the other extreme, where it's all conformity, it's all pleasing the teacher, right, and being able to sit still and be quiet, and uh, and that just doesn't work for a lot of kids, and I think this is one reason why we we see, for instance, that that um, boys are having trouble in America and. Are less likely to succeed in high school, less likely to, to go to college at all, and, and if they do, less likely to graduate. Um, because often they are the ones who who have more trouble um, sitting still and being quiet and and being conformist and and obeying the teacher all the time. So uh, so it doesn't work for everyone, and it, and this, our school systems usually are not teaching. Uh, independent thought and creativity and, and your ability to um, make choices and 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 deal with the consequences and take ownership, right? So these are things that I, I think we we need to have more of in the school system so that uh, kids are able, as adults, to think more for themselves and exercise independent judgment and, and question authority when necessary, right? Um, so I do worry about that. I do worry that um, a lot of people, a lot of a lot of adults in our society, have this sense that, well, if if you get in trouble with the law, you probably deserve it. You know, and, and where that may come from, back in their in the recesses of their mind, is from their experience uh as a As a child in a classroom where the the teacher dispensed favors and punishments uh, mm-hmm. based on some inscrutable wisdom <laughs> uh from above, and people imagine the government is like that, but it's not at all it's just it's just people um some of whom are Uh, are public-spirited, some of whom are not, some of whom are competent, and many of whom are not at all. (laughs) And they often make bad decisions and injustices happen to good people.
1: Yeah, no, that, that makes so much sense. Um, In your article as well, you talk about how, you know, now they're they're moving in some states, even like California, to ban tobacco completely, um, whereas they're opening up marijuana laws and things like that. And I remember watching a documentary many years ago about the prohibition of marijuana and how at that time uh, it it ended up hurting a lot of innocent people who were just sent to jail uh, just for having possession of, you know, personal consumption and things like that. So... So why do we see then, like in your opinion, that things like marijuana are becoming le- legalized, but things like tobacco are now being frowned upon? Is that just because of yeah. the moral judgment? Are there other incentives there maybe that politicians have to ban these kinds of things? Like another example is vaping laws. Like mm-hmm. what's going on there?
0: Yeah. Well, I think the the primary uh, cause of this sort of hypocritical treatment of, of marijuana and tobacco is Ideology, right? And the culture war. So um, mm-hmm. people who smoke tobacco, they're probably, they're probably not college educated. They're, they're probably not very progressive. They may not think the right things about pronouns. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> right? mm-hmm. And so smokers are an outgroup. And we can hurt smokers um, of tobacco. <laughs> but marijuana, that's, that's progressive. That's creative. Artists do that. And so we want to be good progressives and and, and liberals and uh, and respect these people. Uh, mm-hmm. And so, yes, marijuana is being elevated not not because of uh, unfortunately any idea of respecting people's private choices or their property rights, but instead simply that we appro- we approve of marijuana more, <laughs> which I think is right. exactly the wrong reason to. To, uh, to legalize it, um, and we disapprove of tobacco more, so we're going to start regulating that more and more. It's unfortunate that that's the case, but it seems as if people's approval and disapproval of choices is driving their support for either legalizing or banning things. Um, and again, that is an abdication of our moral judgment of understanding that even if something isn't prohibited, it may not be a good idea, and I, I need to think that through.
1: Yeah. And actually, if we take that example a little bit further to something more extreme, we can think about opioids and fentanyl and street drugs, um, like San Francisco, uh, you know, what's going on there with that whole thing. So there's very kind of liberal laws around those things. And and beyond Mm -hmm. it just being liberal, though, you know, because maybe some uh, Republicans will argue, well, you need to ban these substances, but it's not just the substances themselves, but it's actually the incentives for people to use those substances and the enablement of their addictions, right? That's kind of leading yeah. to uh, the kind of state of affairs in places like San Francisco. Um, what do you think, like coming from a classical liberal or libertarian uh, viewpoint about Hard drugs, like how should that be dealt with?
0: yeah, so hard drugs um, should be in my opinion, lawful for consenting adults uh, so it's ultimately a a matter of rights over your person that you are you have self ownership in your person and of property rights, right These are substances that you if you purchase them. Uh, voluntarily, then you own them and you can do what you like with them, so long as you're not harming others. But, um, at the same time, we should be very careful about children or or people who who may not be consenting or of of the ability to consent. We need to have strong protections uh, for children. We need to have strong protections for public spaces, right? And so this gets us to Mm -hmm. to the problem of San Francisco, right? When people are unsafe because some, uh, because because others are abusing drugs in public, um, or even just um, making public spaces annoying and, and uncomfortable. Like you have to walk through clouds of marijuana smoke on the on the streets of New York. Uh, sometimes yeah, these things Yeah, that's days. like
1: externalities, right? Like that's a question that's right. too. How much does, you know, somebody's... Uh, But that argument can be applied to carbon emissions, you know, how, Mm -hmm. uh, what is the role for dealing with externalities and things that actually are affecting other people outwardly, you know, because those, those arguments are tricky, because then they can be used for things, you know, like CO2 emissions, and not just walking through an encampment uh, filled with marijuana (laughs) smoke and needles, right?
0: Yeah, so uh, the formula should be significant, direct, Negative externalities, right? So if I'm p- imposing something that's a, a true harm on you, uh, if I'm in, invading, certainly if I'm invading your nose and your lungs, right? Then I think that is something that um, that is an actual harm that that could be actionable in a, in a court of law, right? If mm. it's um, if there's some you know distress that happens as a result of that, or some um, some medical effects, and so I actually do think that air pollution. Um, is an example where the, the libertarian approach actually supports strong environmental regulations when they um, are, deal with things that cause true health problems for people, right? So if you are mm-hmm. polluting other people's lungs, you're invading their space and you're causing a significant direct harm to them and they can legitimately sue you for that. Um, or if, um, if that's not a viable option, we can have some regulatory framework to deal with that. Uh, so, um, actually, that framework is helpful, um, but if you think about everything as an externality <laughs> and just open that up, anytime there's any kind of externality, government can get involved, then yes, then you go off the reservation and, uh, and you could end up endorsing policies that uh, you know cause significant harm to to deal with with something very minor uh, that people right. could handle themselves voluntarily right
1: well that's that's where it gets really tricky and actually a, a perfect example i just saw a comment still to this day on twitter you know like yesterday or the day before still to this day people are talking about how you don't have a right to infect people with a virus right. <laughs> so like you don't have a right to go out there without a mask you know and and breathe on people so, so it becomes really tricky. Like, where do you draw the line with those kinds of externalities and right, policy? That's right.
0: So to me, um, common sense says that, yeah, I don't have a right, if I know that I have COVID or some infectious disease, to walk up to you and intentionally infect you with it, right, without mm-hmm. your consent, right? Um, but when we're talking about Requiring people to wear masks in in public spaces um, without any proof that they have the disease, <laughs> um, then we're 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 doing something called prior restraint. We're saying there's some small chance that you might be posing some small risk to someone uh, indirectly. <laughs> and And that's what's going to cause us to to control you. Um, that that is unjustifiable, right? Because um, there we end up with intolerable restrictions on our ability simply to live our lives. So we could say, for the same in the same way, well, um, you know, it, you're having a, a beer at home. Well, it's there's some small chance that then you could that could impair your faculties to the extent that you go out and get in a car and drive and hit somebody and and you know and 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 harm them so so we're going to ban beer, right <laughs> um, So the same sorts of um, logic could ultimately end up constraining all of our choices to such an extent that life isn't worth living anymore right So it really has to be you, you can't intentionally cause direct harm to people and that's that's what we can control but we can't control all these minor risks that don't, don't actually cause fear to anyone um, because they are small enough and indirect enough um, that you know. Really, at the end of the day, um, it's it's shouldn't be a factor in our choices and in our sense of well-being, right? If I I'm I'm being kind of neurotic and unreasonable if I have if I'm crippled by fear that someone out there might have an infectious disease that I'll get, right? That's not a that's not a healthy uh, mentality to have, and, and our, our legal framework should encourage, um, you know, a more kind of he- healthy approach to our interactions with people, because we need to interact with people. This is where human progress comes from, is voluntary interactions, um, and, and, and we need a framework that, that encourages that uh, without, um, you know, taking away people's ability to uh, to make a wide range of choices about what kind of life they want to lead.
1: I've been reading a couple of good books lately, um, and a lot of them kind of come from a different era. So uh, Hayek's Road to Serfdom is one of them, and uh, Victor Frankl's Man in Search of Meaning. And what I'm finding in those uh, pieces of literature is that there's the, these similarities that I can kind of draw on when a society is swinging very collectivist, right? Where mm. You know, they've decided that the rights of the majority supersede those of the minority or those of the individual, where people have to make these sacrifices for the greater good. And I wonder if this is something that, you know, happens in cycles where people tend to think more that way. And then, you know, they realize after things have, have gotten very bad that, oh, maybe, you know, we do need to focus on individual liberty again. And so that kind of becomes more popular. Uh, like, what are your thoughts on that? I mean, in general, are, is this kind of, are these tendencies that result from a collectivist framework?
0: I think so. I think actually, human beings um, have a collectivist framework sort of innately, based on uh, the kind of environment that our ancestors lived in for, you know hundreds of thousands of years, which was a small-scale collectivist um, you know group. And uh, right, in a, in a hunter-gatherer society, um, mm-hmm the people you live with they're they're your family right and families are not just anonymous sort of transactional environments they're places where you support each other and where there's some ability also to try to affect each other's choices right and so there's there's a little more scope for group action within a family than in a kind of group of anonymous strangers right so that um, that collectivist framework, a lot of people now want to apply to society. Right? They make that inference that, well, I wish society were more like a family. It's a grave error, as as Hayek realized, that in the in the great society, precisely what allows us to progress and have cooperation across people who don't know each other is that it's very minimal. Right? I don't have to know your life story. You don't have to know mine. I don't have to care about, um, you know, your your dog and your your, you know, love life and and your and your kids, to to buy a product from you, right, and and vice versa, and um, and if we did have to care about each other to that extent and get involved in each other's lives to that extent, we couldn't carry out all these little transactions that make up a modern economy and that have allowed our standard of living to progress and our lifespans to to expand um, very greatly over our, our prehistoric past. So in the, in the great society, we should, not, we should not think of that as a family. We should think of it as um, a kind of arena where people can interact with kind of a, a neutral playing field, very simple rules for us all basically just to get along. In, a family should work by different rules. But I, I do think that, that collectivists have that kind of emotional appeal, that model of the family of equality, of care... Um, of, you know, some degree of paternalistic control, right, of, of your lifestyle choices. And this um, this appeals to a lot of people just innately. And so we have to keep learning that lesson over and over again that, oh, yeah, no, that doesn't work when we try to <laughs> extend it beyond the family to, to larger groups. And... Um, and so, unfortunately, I think we're in at a, at a point of history right now where we have to learn that lesson again. It's been, you know, 30 years since uh, since communism fell uh, in, in in Europe, and um, and and a lot of young people have, don't have that lesson that the that socialism doesn't work and it causes misery and despair and 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 slavery, uh, and uh, and and so they're advocating some of these ideas that we know will not work and that will um, take away people's rights and freedoms. And we're just going to have to learn some of these lessons over again.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Unfortunately, I, I tend to agree with you there. <laughs> but, um, <laughs> you know, there's another thing in there as well, which is that uh, I don't know if yeah families, I think, do operate, you know, with looking out for each other. And I've had this this debate with a friend of mine on multiple occasions, but do you not think as well that that tends to also trickle out into society? Mm-hmm. Like, for example, you were talking about your children before and how you allow them choices within boundaries right like not saying this is a free-for-all like libertine family but there are certain boundaries there and you respect your children and you allow them that kind of leeway and in doing so you're kind of building this um uh this relationship with them where it's not an authoritarian paternalistic relationship it's like authoritative versus authoritarian and and Mm -hmm. do you not think that maybe that kind of trickles out to society and that because that's not necessarily the norm in how people uh, bring up their families. You know, they tend to kind of repeat things intergenerationally as well in cycles. That's why we also see a majority that tends to be kind of very tribal and collectivist, because that's how they interact within their family. Like, there's a lot of control, unhealthy I, I, control.
0: <laughs> I think you're right, and... Um... And I, maybe I would I would reconcile the points this way. I think the reason why a um, more kind of rationalist, if you will, approach to parenting, where you're you're helping children develop their decision-making authority and de- ability to think for themselves, the reason why that makes sense in our society is precisely that um, we want our adult our kids to grow up to be adults who can function in a in a society where um, they're not going to be always taken care of, right? There's not always going to be someone there to um, to watch over them. And if they were to try to rely on that through the government, we would that would be a, a we would consider that a, to be a failure. right? <laughs> we would consider that to be disappointing or or in a, a, at least regrettable. We could put it that way. Um, If you do look at more traditional societies, often parenting is more authoritarian, right? Arranged marriages and, Mm -hmm. you know, female circumcision and all sorts of things that that are aimed at precisely at controlling their children's lives. And and maybe the reason that parenting style was so popular in those societies was that the the broader society did not prize independent judgment, initiative, tolerance – uh, thinking for yourself, right? That these freedom. were not, yeah, right. <laughs> that freedom was not mm. available in the broader society or valuable, um, and so the authoritarian parenting style could could survive and kind of maybe make sense within that framework. So I, I do think, yeah, you're right. Uh, we should um, raise our kids to to be freer thinking, uh, but precisely because uh, our our society. Still is largely and and should be one that that prizes freedom.
1: Um, One of the things that I've been wondering about, and I don't know the answer to, and I would love to get your opinion on, is how do you deal with things like, we see right now that there's the kind of um, trans activist agenda that's that's playing out, um, which may be different for children and adults, right? There's a distinction there, but it has really kind of, swallowed up uh the the sphere of children and we see Mm -hmm. that there's a lot of outcry people are really resisting that um so you know things like anywhere from drag queen story hour uh, in schools or in public libraries or things like that to uh surgeries and hormones Mm -hmm. and drugs that are that are life altering and and maybe even deadly like a recent article came up about um these things going very wrong uh, mm-hmm. for for children. So, how does how do you deal with that f- kind of from a classical liberal or libertarian uh, perspective?
0: Mm-hmm. So, I I think with all these issues, we have to draw that distinction between what's a, a right and a good choice, and what is a, a choice that should be required by law, right? Uh, so. Um, there may be examples like Drag Queen Story Hour, where many parents might reasonably believe this is something I'd, I'd rather my child were not exposed to, right? It, um, I, I don't want my child to be super confused about um, the adult world and, um, and and what that's going to be like when they grow up and, and confused about their sexuality, right? Um, and, and maybe, to some small degree, a drag queen story hour might cause some of that confusion. Uh, and so that's a reason why I don't want my kids to participate in that. Should government ban drag queen story hour by law? Well, to me, that requires a showing then that that you're you're causing some significant permanent harm to these kids by exposing them to this. and i I think that case is unproven. Uh, now maybe you could do some scientific research to show that, right? And so that's you know these gray areas are where actually data does matter, right? So we don't know always exactly what's going to cause significant harm to children and where that where that legal boundary should be drawn. Um, and and possibly we could draw it in a a different place, depending on what we find out. But just intuitively, it it seems that these are the sorts of things that maybe parents with certain cultural values might want to expose their kids to, and the rest of us might see that as sort of odd, and maybe not great, but in the interest of um, allowing for the autonomy of the family, we're not going to say we're going to go take your kids away from you or we're going to try to prohibit these kinds of things from ever happening. On the other hand, you get invasive interventions like hormone treatments and surgeries uh, for kids. And and there, I think, a libertarian or anyone would have to say um, kids can't necessarily make their own choices about uh, these kinds of permanent, life-altering um you know, decisions, right? These these changes. So there is potentially a very strong role for the legal system in, in preventing uh, these things from happening, uh, at least until the age of majority when they can make these decisions for themselves. So yeah. I, that's kind of how I tease out that difference.
1: Yeah, no, I think that that's a really important distinction. And um, another thing as well about uh, teaching kind of, uh, gender ideology in schools, you know, at very young ages, mm-hmm. like maybe could a case be made that we don't ban this outright, mm-hmm. you know, because uh, coming back to your first argument about drag queen story hour, we don't ban it outright, but it should not be within the hands of the state. So it shouldn't be in public schools and people should have a choice as to whether they want their children to be exposed to this or not. Like, is that, could that be a case to be made?
0: That's right. And and this is the problem when you have government education is that there's always going to be a battle over what values government is provo- promoting in that education. And it's not possible for government to be completely neutral among values, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Um, they're going to be promoting one set of values versus another, regardless of uh, the approach that they take. They're either going to be saying, hey, um, you know, your your religious views about these lifestyles are are out of place because we want to you know allow all of these things to happen within the school Um, or they're going to be saying no we're going to endorse the concerns of say um, you know morally conservative or religious people about these lifestyles we're not going to allow these lifestyles and so we're making a decision about about lifestyle about beliefs as a government and that that's not okay (laughs) so it's I really think there's a, a strong argument to be made for not having government um, management of educational institutions because mm-hmm. that's the only way you can be um, neutral among all these competing values is is at most to have, say, government funding to the parents where they can then decide a, a, on what type of private institution they want to um, to educate their kids in. And then those private institutions can decide what sort of, um, you know values and, and what sort of, of code they're going to require their, their students to live by.
1: Right. And then you have kind of like a, a free market school system, right? Where the market actually decides kind of who wins. And, and the the ideas and the schools and the curriculums that end up being more popular are the ones that you're going to see more of. And that will just kind of sort out the ideological tendencies in society, you know, to go one way or another. And it will actually um become more apparent what people actually want because i think that a lot of these ideologies that are being uh espoused in school are coming from the top down they're not necessarily coming from the bottom up and representing what people actually want for their children
0: absolutely uh the, the truth is we don't know what what parents actually want for their kids in the public in the public schools because there's no mechanism for that to be decided on other than than political fighting. right? Uh, But instead of political fighting, if we just allowed people to vote with their dollars, then we'd we'd probably get a much more sensible mix of policies that are going to work to um, to help parents and their kids.
1: Yeah. And so in New Hampshire, do you have more school choice?
0: We do. Uh, we haven't adopted yet the universal school choice model that's, that uh, some states are are now uh, starting, uh, but we do have uh, several forms of school choice. Um, towns. Some towns don't have their own public schools, so they can uh, give money to parents and let them choose a private school. So those towns can have full school choice, actually. Um, some towns do have public schools, and in those towns, you still have available a state program for school choice, where up to three hundred percent of the federal poverty level um, parents can get a, uh, a check from the government to pay for either homeschool or or uh, private school expenses. Uh, we also have a tax credit scholarship program that provides additional support for homeschool and private school tuition. So we have a lot of, of school choice options, and those are becoming more popular every year.
1: Okay, cool. So just to kind of wrap it up, because we're, uh, we're running out of time. Uh, This has been a really rich conversation. So thank you. Um, Just thinking about, you know, my last question for you, I guess, Jason would be, we talked about collectivism and how that tends to be kind of a generational thing going way and way and way back, like those kind of tendencies. And I think I saw a tweet put out by you or somebody else from the New State Project saying, um, part of the reason of having this project and having one state where you kind of allow these things to play out and, and you invite liberty oriented people to come live is because it's not necessarily pragmatic to think that you're going to change the whole country or the whole world with ideas (laughs) of liberty. So let's take all of the people who actually hold these values and say, Hey, why don't, why don't we all live next door?
0: Right. (laughs) Yeah. Liberty can be a counterintuitive idea to people, right? You have to do your research before you realize, oh, yeah, this actually makes sense, and it changes everything uh, I previously knew about the world. <laughs> and not a lot of people are going to to make that uh, that realization. And so we're, we're we're going to be a minority globally, but we can be a majority in in one place. And furthermore, isn't it great to be around people who you know for a fact, regardless of what you may disagree with them about on matters of society or religion or whatever, they're always going to respect your rights. You know, mm-hmm. at minimum, that is the thing that you can you can be confident in. That's really important.
1: Yeah, yeah. That makes a lot of sense. And so do you think then that it will continue that way and that it's always kind of been that way where really liberty-minded people are kind of a minority in society?
0: I think so. I mean, you can go back to times in American history where it seems like the majority of people definitely had a skepticism of government. So if you go back to, say, 1900... there was a lot of pride in in not being on welfare, for example, and we didn't have significant national welfare programs. There was a lot of mutual, aid, private mutual aid that happened instead. So definitely, you could say that people were a lot more liberty minded, maybe back in 1900 than they are today. Um, but I, I still wouldn't say that they had any kind of deep philosophical commitment to the principles of individual liberty. Mm-hmm, people mm-hmm. are, you well, know, yeah.
1: Yeah, you look at the French Revolution. You know, like people were yeah. very anti-government. Didn't mean that they were necessarily pro-freedom. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, that's that's right. That's right. And you know, people may, uh, you know, we, as we know from from our history, people may support freedom for that group, but obviously not that group, right? So, uh, yeah. so we've dealt with that forever.
1: Yeah. So a libertarian, classical liberal, kind of. Uh, supports freedom for all, freedom for all individuals, the smallest minority. So, um, any last thoughts, Jason, before we wrap up?
0: <laughs> uh, well, th- well, thank you, Kate. Uh, it's it's been a, a pleasure to to speak about, um, yeah, why why government should should leave people alone to uh, to make their own uh, private choices and and learn from them. And I don't know. I hope that um, that some of these countries like New Zealand will will rethink uh, what they're doing. Um, Because if if we continue down this path, it's going to be pretty crazy that, um, you know, fairly harmless, innocuous choices are going to be prohibited simply because they might be damaging to our health. That sets a dangerous precedent.
1: Yes, absolutely. So I encourage our viewers to go check out your article, Treating Adults Like Children, and uh, they can follow you on Twitter, uh, read your work at AIR.org. Once again, thanks so much for joining me today here, Jason, and hope to talk to you again
0: soon. Thank you, Kate.